Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. On today's episode, I talk with Jeannie Diefendorfer, The Challenger. Jeannie had the classic first and second act. She was a top student in a challenging major at Tufts University. She followed that by a terrific career rising through the network organization at Verizon. Jeannie's always led her life finding and taking on the hardest of challenges. In her third act, though, she's focused on what for many of us is the hardest challenge, being fully present for our family, friends, and ourselves. So Jeannie, welcome to Third Act. Thank you so much, Liz. I'm delighted to be here with you. We're delighted to have you. And uh, thinking about this, you're my second person from Verizon, second woman. So there must be something in the break room coffee for (laughs) sort of super achiever serum. So, uh, but seriously, what a great legacy of of supporting female leaders there. uh, Yes, absolutely. I like to start with a bit of background on my guests, first and second act. So your first act, which is sort of the, the school, was at Tufts. So tell us more about how did you end up at Tufts? Why did you pick there? What did you do? Ah, so I was raised, uh, born and raised in South Korea, Seoul, and came to U.S. Uh, 74, right? So went to Sacred Heart first in Manhattan and then public junior high and public high school in Queens. So for me, the whole college search process was so new. Frankly, didn't get much help from home because, you know, nobody really knew how Mm -hmm. that process worked here. And so I followed my guidance counselor's direction at a school and, you know, flipping through the book, right? Like everybody else based on my grade. Yeah, I remember those. I don't Mm -hmm. even know what they're called, but just going through them and, um, Tufts came about through a bunch of other schools in Boston area, and it was sort of one of those schools that I wanted to take a look at. Long story short, went on the campus tour with other schools in the area as well. I just fell in love with it. What did you plan to study, and then what did you end up studying? Being the Asian American, the model minority kind of a a person, of course, it was always like, you know, lawyer, doctor, Doctor, engineer. Yeah, right? It's always like that. It was process of elimination for me. You know, I have this disease, I guess, where, you know, I always want to tackle on the hardest thing. So I picked chemical engineering. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? Of all the engineering majors, it is the Hardest. hardest, they say, and it has the most number of requirements. So I said, you know, why not? So I picked it and there you go. (laughs) That is the quintessential first act, overachiever. I'm sure your grades were good. Pick the hardest thing. I did something similar. I picked aerospace engineering. Well, there you go. Which was just a notch down from chemical engineering. I don't know about that. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Chemistry was my nemesis in school. Okay. So, but what did you end up graduating in? Chemical engineering or something else? Yep. Yeah. Chemi. Chemi. Yeah. Wow. All the way. Now, how did you then end up at Verizon? So, oh uh, my God. You know, I, I could summarize my life. I was thinking about this the other day with like serendipity all the way, right? Yep. So 1984, I graduated with a chemical engineering degree. One thing I knew is that chemis made the most money as a starting yep. salary. They did, you're like, right. right. So unfortunately, 1984 was one of the worst years for chemis. 
So I applied to like dozens and dozens, right? All of the oil companies, all of the chemical sort of companies came down to essentially Procter & Gamble, great company, right? And um, I was interviewing with New England Telephone, um, sort of as a curiosity, right? Okay. Didn't didn't even know what telephone companies did other than like, what do they do? Like make telephones, right? <laughs> being the being the person that you know, young person that I was. But I did go for the interview. Had a great interview. You know, at those days they made you take these tests, which was mm-hmm. crazy. You know, and I did well on the test. And so there was a like a backup for me to stay in Boston. Yeah. And I fully intended, by the way, that I'd just park myself there for a year or two until my industry improved. And then, you know, I'll jump off, right, to someplace more relevant. So I decided to start as a management trainee with Nyungan Telephone, fully expecting that I wouldn't stay there long. And 28 years later. Oh, my gosh. So they probably didn't care what your major was. They probably looked at you like smart. I think I did a pretty good job convincing them that I think I was like their first college hire chemi or something. And, you know, and I told them, I said, look, I mean, you know, engineer's an engineer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, you're getting out of me like you get out of any other engineer, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was probably BSing half the time. Okay, so let's kind of skip ahead. So you, so tell us about, so your last job is, well, it's a huge job. And that's, I think, where I yes. met you as Senior Vice President of Global Enterprise Customer Care. Yes. So how did you get to that? What was that? And then how did you make the decision to retire? So before that job, I was still in network. I did a few other back and forth, but ended up back in network, running the network job for the globe, right? So mm-hmm. I had the engineers, I had the planners, I had the operations folks. Oh my God, it was an incredible job. And then we sort of bought a few companies like MCI and a few other big ones. And, you know, we, we, we entered into the whole enterprise business, which was not our really strength. So all of a sudden we have this huge operation and function. The leadership asked me to take on the enterprise customer care because of my network background mm-hmm. and frankly we're selling network products right to enterprise yes. uh, these humongous yep. enterprise customers and because most of those customers my for my peers it was a really good fit and you know again it was not my my initial reaction was, was like mm, i don't know <laughs> i kind mm-hmm. of like what i'm doing but eventually i you know i said okay i'll i'll do it and it was an amazing experience, amazing experience. I had, you know, frankly, people in, I swear to God, it felt like every country, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you did. Asia Pag, you know, EMEA yeah. and all over. And um, it was such a great learning experience. And, you know, people who have never done serving customers jobs, right, at, at the levels that it, it, I recommend it so much because it just makes you a better executive. I agree. Because so, you yeah, directly and, from them. Oh my God. And they, you know, they're not shy, right? And they're as big as you are. We're talking like, you know, Dow 50. <laughs> they're not going to put up with anything. Nope. And it really taught me humility and humbleness and also appreciation for all the, you know, things that they're trying to accomplish. So mm-hmm. it really gave me an opportunity to look at the world through the customer's eyes, um, which was fantastic. And then, you know, our company was going through changes, right? So we had leadership changes at the top. 
the wireless and wireline functions were kind of converging together. And it was like everything else, it was time to refresh. And I started to see a lot of the people that I work with beginning to step out, right? And and of course, it was time. It's a good thing. You know, I always say ventilation is a good thing. I agree. Um, So I started to watch all that. And I looked around and, you know, when I think about like, what else am I really dying to do in the company? I really couldn't come up with a lot because when I look at technical operations, network, all that stuff, I've done all of that, right? And it was just so much fun. I had 28 years in the business. The company was going through a culture shift somewhat and leadership shift. Mm-hmm. This and is thought, when Lowell came in. So the switch yeah, before so Lowell, wireless that was culture. Lowell's like, yeah, Lowell was like first year, I think, maybe second year. Um, but Ivan had retired maybe mm-hmm. like a year, year or two ago. Yeah, Ivan Seidenberg, right. Um, and I remember, I, I said to Ivan, you know, at some point, it's like, oh my God, if you're leaving, I'm gone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I know that you know? same feeling. Like, ooh, right? I don't want to be the oldest person here. You're the last exactly. one standing. And Ivan's like, what are you talking about? You're like a baby. You're staying here. You know? And uh, my daughter was going off to college. Right? Mm-hmm. So that was a milestone, right? And Derek, my son, um, who's four and a half years behind her, I think he was going into like eighth grade. And I thought, this could be a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was beginning to sense culture shift. Mm-hmm. And it was different, right? Yep. And whether or not I liked it or not, as I look back on it, it was just a change. Right. And as I looked at my life, I, I turned 51. I thought, this could be a good pivot. When you uh, decided to retire, did you know what you were going to do next? Zero. Ah. Zero. So let's talk about that. So the funny thing, because we obviously prepped a little bit before this, you told me that the best thing about embarking on your third act was this whole notion of just say no. And I told you that my advice from people was to just say yes. So you said no for a while. Yeah, basically like a year. Yeah. How did that go? Just saying no. It was, you know, it was, it was a little hard in the beginning. Because you always, you have this somebody sitting on your shoulder going, oh, they're never going to come back to you. They're never going to come back to you. (laughs) You keep on saying no. (laughs) But I kind of went with my gut Uh and went with sort of the advice that I've gotten from people I respect who weren't saying say no forever, who were saying, hey, this is a huge shift. I mean, you've been head down for 28 years, if not your entire life. And it's time for you to sort of, look back and say, and, you know, what do I really want to do next? Mm -hmm. And for you to do that, you need time to, you know, one of my um, direct reports used the word detox. I love that. Detox. It's like, you need to detox. Yeah, you need to detox. (laughs) I used to think, Um, (laughs) I think we have this at Accenture, we had this big training facility out at St. Charles, Illinois. And I say, is there a detox center out there? Because you used to have to go like every single year. I'm like, they need a, you know, a detox on your way out. Right, exactly. So strong. So you you have a small kitchen cabinet of people who give you advice. So who's in that cabinet, yeah. and what did they and what were they telling you to do other than to say no? And you know, and honestly, it's it's a, it's a fluid group. Originally, it started out with you know, I talked to Ivan, I talked to Jim Stern, who mm-hmm. was the board chair at the time at Tufts. I was a trustee at Tufts, and I I admire him greatly and. He's somebody who's been around the professional and, you know, corporate circuit for a long time. And 
great, great mentor and mm-hmm. coach. And Ivan, of course, you know, is a, is a fantastic uh, mentor and, and few others that I go to. And everybody gave me slightly different advice, but complete, you know, I always say to people that the best mentors and coaches I've had in my life, um, now I look back, were the ones who never told me what to do, but gave me sort of the optionality of sort of paths. Mm-hmm. And when I asked for prescription, they would say, oh no, that's your call. You have to figure it right? out yourself. And, yeah. And they to like sometimes frustrate the heck out of me. I'd say, come on, tell me. It's like, no, no, you got to make your own call. But I really love that because it really forced you to think about what is it that you want to do and does it align with sort of inherently your values, right? Right. And I, I go back to people and there are others who've been added on in my, in my life over the years. And one of the wonderful things about those folks are I don't, Talk, I may not talk to them often, but when I do, it feels like I just talked to them yesterday, which I love, right? It's like good friends. Yep. And I love that. And I have to say in the last, ooh, eight years now going, right, since I retired, I mean, the number of brilliant, grounded, incredibly mature, wonderful women that I've met since then, I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah, and too. I love that, right? right. And yeah. just, they just give me so much energy. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I would agree. So that's fantastic. Yeah, and I, so and I feel like I didn't. Happened. I feel like I never really got that opportunity, other than to meet the women at Accenture and people like you who are clients. But you know, not outside of that, just because I didn't have time, which is right. so silly. And I wasn't looking for it, which I think was a mistake. We both have families. Uh, we're both, you know, kind of KPI driven, which is why school was great, why work is good, because you've got all these KPIs. But you mentioned this thing called when you're thinking about your third act, the unit and getting your family yeah. involved. So talk a little yeah. bit more about that. So, and this is at revelation and recognition that I've sort of learned to discover. I have to say, Liz, to be really honest, that it, when I look back at my professional life. It's something that I didn't focus on, honestly. Yeah, I didn't either. Right? So I, it, I was sort of the traditional, you know, husband and wife have roles. Although for me and my husband, we were, it was sort of reversed because George being the mature one in the family, when we um, decided to have Mia, he already had a lot of years in the business. And he said, you know what? If they offer a, like a sweetener package, I should take it because i rather stay home. Your career is sort of like taking off. And it's kind of hard to say no to this really good package. And i rather have one of us home when she, you know, basically said when she gets off the bus from school. And I thought I was so grateful, honestly, because I didn't even think that, right? Yeah. yeah. Because I didn't think that's what men and, did, honestly. So and very unusual really at that time. Out. And George is much older than I am. So okay. he's, you know, he's lived life and is much more mature in that regard. <laughs> And so it, it was really, for me, just do, I, I was the breadwinner, my career was taking off, and George was sort of the trailing spouse. But having said that, I treated my family life and my kids as um, sort of a separate unit away from my professional life. And I look back and, uh, you know, like, like we all do, um, type A's, 
I used to self-rationalize my decision around quality of time versus quantity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when I was working like a crazy woman, people used to ask me, it's like, so how do you balance that? And, you know, how do you like, how do you be the perfect, you know, sort of woman doing both? And it's like, well, there's no such thing. But I think, you know, I focus on quality rather than quantity. And I make sure that I'm present mm-hmm. at the right kind of places for my children. And, you know, that was a way for me to sort of self-rationalize my decision-making process. I look back, honestly, Liz, now and say, I really wasn't that present all the time. Yeah, I wasn't either. Right? I hear you. And, I hear you. And, yep. and um, you know, again, it made my kids who they are. Thank God, knock on wood. They're both wonderfully uh, value-driven, grounded uh, human beings, which I think is wonderful. But I look back and now what I think that I didn't have that I would advise, and I do with a lot of young rising stars, women uh, with small children or trying to have children is, you know, I find that I found this with my kids. Kids are so much wiser and more resilient than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And if I had involved my kids from the very beginning I think my life could have been fuller. I think my holistic unit of mm-hmm. life, whether or not it's family, work, whatever, and George would have been easier, to be honest, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't have this, I, I lived with guilt all my life. Well, that's sort of a given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> About like, oh, I couldn't make it to that. I, you know, do this. I had to travel seven days in a row, all that kind of stuff. And I wish I had done more of it. And now what I tell younger women is I want them to learn from all of my mistakes. I do too. You know? I say and, the same. And so I was just talking to a woman last week and she has young kids, you know, in, in elementary school during this time, which is, has to be so hard. And I told her, I said, think about ways to integrate involving them and your family unit in everything you do. I think you had even mentioned it's almost as though... I wouldn't say it's a KPI, but it's a, it is in some ways like the unit is a, is another part of the decision-making. So you have this exactly. work thing, right? So, which is so easy to measure like, oh, I'm going to get a promotion. Like, let's see what, what would I get paid? What would be the responsibilities? Yes. How would I be measured? Can I do that? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go for it. But then you want to balance that against how's that going to impact the unit at home? And and you're right. And I love that suggestion to say, get them involved, talk it through. What does it mean? Right. And I, I can remember you did the same. Like, okay. I'm going to Manila. I'm going to India. I'll see you guys, I guess in like a week, two weeks. Not sure. <laughs> Bye. Right. Hope everybody's tests go well. See ya. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> as opposed to now I will say, and you probably had the same. Sometimes my kids came along or they got some interesting opportunities because of it, but me, me, me. So and now, yeah, exactly. Since you've retired, I mean, have you been able to put that unit concept more front and center? And if so, how? <laughs> you know, it's funny because now, now my kids are uh, grown up. And so when I first retired, I was like, oh my God, I have a second chance with my son. He's mm-hmm. in eighth grade. I'm going to be like present. I'm going to be so <laughs> present. Well, you know, it backfired, right? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you know, you don't go, you don't go from like working 70 hours a week to like, 
on him or because of course Mia who was going off to college right mm-hmm. in in 2012 as soon as she found out I was going to retire and stay at home she looked at Derek and she said I feel for you man <laughs> I, I have one left at home too and the same my older two said oh my gosh mom's home that's going to be hell <laughs> Mia's like goodbye I'm out of here right <laughs> you know and one thing I learned through that first year probably of retirement with Derek, who was in, I think at the time, middle school is no, you don't, you don't like go all in because they also have their own semblance of a life Mm -hmm. and you're not in it all the time. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you can't switch that on them without giving them the opportunity to transition. George, George is one of the most, I, I am so lucky in this regard because I marry somebody who's so low maintenance, Liz. (laughs) <laughs> that <laughs> only thing only thing he worried about was are you gonna be like okay with yourself mm-hmm. you know because yeah i'm fine you know i'm gonna be fine but are you are you sure you're gonna be like able to manage all that free time and it got to where nothing's nothing's really changed in any way right because it's not like i retired and i was following him around so I was mm-hmm. like, oh, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because we were so independent human beings. So he kept on doing what he does, which is he's got lots of you know uh, friends that he goes to see or he plays golf with or, or whatever that may be. And I also had an external life. So it sort of shifted in that way in terms of time, but it didn't cause sort of this clash of, whoa, now, we're all, now you're telling me we're all of a sudden like a unit and we have mm-hmm. to do everything together. So board work. So you're on several for-profit boards. How Mm. how did you get involved in that? Well, it's so interesting. My first one came about as what everybody tells you, right? It didn't come from a recruiter as much as recruiters are helpful in in general ways. It came through a a connection, um, business colleague, through my network. So that's how my first one happened. Through a network. And then you know how it is, Liz. I mean, the board work to me is still a closed ecosystem. Uh, And trying to get into your first board we have to fight that catch-22. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to your job, uh, what do you like about being on the boards and what don't you like? And again, it's um, <laughs> because I love challenges so much, right? Something to, something to work on. I really like the challenge of making an entity and management better by oversight, insight, and governance without actually running the darn thing yourself. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes it's easier to jump in and do it yourself. But when you say, no, that's not my thing, sometimes harder thing to do is to influence Mm -hmm. the outcome by being a great board member. Mm -hmm. And I find that work amazingly challenging and rewarding. You had said to me that um, you so believe, I love that. Yeah, that you believe boards are like a point of entry to hard work, which I'm yeah. not sure everybody looks at it that way. And we have a lot of listeners who are trying to get on board. So say more about that. So it's it just my observation, right? In the mm-hmm. in the eight years that I, I've been at this, and what I observe is that we're at a time of transition in board work, where traditional boards in the past were more of, and it still is in many ways, right? So it is, board work is considered sort of the epitome of success, 
right? So it's the pinnacle of your accomplishment mm-hmm. when the, you had a really, really successful career. The top KPI. And, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. whoa, then you want to get on a board and as many as you can because you want to become a professional board member or, or something like that. And I just think that what, when you have the mentality, you tend to look at it as a point of destination mm-hmm. and arrival. And when you think of work that way, what happens is you work really, really hard to get there. But once you get there, you relax. And you think, okay, I've done all the work, hard, hard work to get here. So now I can kind of relax and you know, think of it as gravy work. Well, no, that's not where it's going. And it, mm-hmm. it, it hasn't been in the last few years. So I, I think we, I look at board work as point of entry, meaning it is really the next phase of hard work. It's just different hard work, mm-hmm. which means you have to go in with a mindset that says, I'm going to learn as much as I used to learn. I'm going to execute as a board person in terms of my roles and responsibility, just as hard as I was in management. And I am going to do everything in my power to make that company better. In your eight years, have you seen a change in the way your fellow board members approach being on a board? I think it's getting there. I don't think we're there yet, Liz. I think but we're in that active sort of fertile ground of that. And there's a lot of debate. I mean, there's a lot of debate in board circles. And I love that having the debate about a faction of boards who think that boards are getting too into management work when you think Mm -hmm. about strategy. When you think about ESG, when you think about all these topics, you know, there are some people who believe, wait a minute, all that work belongs with management. Board should advise, board should sort of oversee and look at metrics. And then there's another faction that says, well, wait a minute, board should be more involved, not, not doing the work, but board should be more involved in actually working with management in strategy formulation, mm-hmm. in ESG formulation, in stakeholder management. So... What's great right now is we're smack in the middle of those discussions. And I, I think it's fun. Yeah, and I'm sure it depends on the management team as well, how much help, how much they let you in as completely, well. Completely, yeah. completely. And, yeah. and in fairness to them, most of them have grown up in the world of, I run it and you advise me. Right. So when you start to me to like, looks like you're trying to cross that line in the sand, I get a little nervous. Yeah, uh, the two boards I'm on are complete opposites. One's very buttoned up. We run everything you know, agenda, the management team presents. The other one is like a, I called it a rugby scrum. <laughs> the the, the, the board meeting starts, there's an agenda topic and then boosh, you know, everybody just jumps right. in, which I prefer actually that latter one because that's kind of the way, and I'm sure for you as well, you grew up working because there was just so much new stuff going on all the time. And it was all hands on deck, just trying to sort it out. I like the collaborative aspect of that. And so uh, many of our, our listeners uh, through the Athena Alliance want to get on a board. And in addition to working your network, any other advice you might give people? You know, I often ask aspiring directors when I talk to them about their first board work is um, I tell them to do the homework of think deeply about why is it that you want to get on a board. And just thinking through that would be to me helpful because it makes you go through the process in your head about What's valuable to me about that work? Uh-huh. Other than everybody else tells me that it's important. Other than people telling me that it is the pinnacle of accomplishment. Because as a chair of the NAMGov committee in one of my boards, when I interview for board members, that's the first question I ask. 
because I get a lot out of the answer, right? In terms of the thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. And then there's so much available information, frankly, out there Mm -hmm. around the roles and responsibilities of the board, going through all of the regulatory environment for a public company board. And there are lots of information out there on private company boards, how the committees work and what are the sort of the no-nos, what are the risks and, and the risks are getting bigger and bigger. What are the current hot topics that's been talked about at board work? Just doing homework around those things and then think through sort of the personal experience that you've had around what, what, what did I really enjoy in my career? What was I really good at? And what was, I mean, how did people come to me as like a go-to person to fix a problem mm-hmm. or whatnot? And then kind of juxtaposing those two things to figure out what do I want to do with that? And then formulating a narrative when people ask you those questions or even just having a conversation. Then you have like a thoughtful conversation about board work mm-hmm. that has the intelligence, the, the research and also thoughtfulness around how you add value. Mm. To me, I think that I think that would be really important. So your third act now is for-profit, not-for-profit, advising? Yeah, so he came to me through a friend who's in the VC community and um, of their portfolio company CEOs. I help leadership in companies, mostly CEOs, as they're trying to scale their business from being a startup to sort of a growth stage and then trying to sort of look at the big things and knowing when to delegate, right? So I help them with leadership development. I help them with finding the right people. I help them with letting people go. Ooh, very hard. Very hard for people to right. do. Um, it is hard. Hardest thing. Yeah. And, um, and just being a counterpoint to their thinking around their business and their people development and talent management. So yeah, I do that. It's really fun. And then fun. What do you do for fun? Yeah. So I, um, I've discovered yoga when I retired. I'm a yoga person, uh, not as often as I like, but I'm still working on it. I love it. I love to play golf. Liz. Okay. So I lately in COVID period, I'm out there two, three times a week, uh-huh. which is fun. I've discovered backpacking. Ah. And uh, you and I talked about hiking did, a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. I like to backpack so, too. Yeah. Never thought I'm I would, just, but you know, I love it. I love, you know, and I, and people, my family's like, are you crazy? George told me that if, if I wanted him to come with me on a backpacking trip, that he would have to carry, I would have to carry his mattress. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if you carry my my bed mattress, I'll go with you. It's like I'm not Ugh. doing that. I did that already as a voice cap. But but you know, I get it. And um, but I, what I love about it is because my tendency is to I tend to like overthink a lot of things, and it's the only time where I only think about where I'm going to put my foot next. Right, and you're and hiking. Nothing else. I told you I was at Glacier National Park yes. last week, which was amazing. But the problem was think also overthinking, which my husband just just kept kidding me about the whole time, is when you yeah. pull into the park, they hand you this yellow strip of paper about the bear alert. And uh, <laughs> there are signs literally everywhere about grizzly yeah. bears. Yeah. And so I had that bear spray like tacked onto the like front of my shirt. And I practiced the, like whipping it out of the holster. And I made my husband practice. And he was just you like, You are insane. funny. 
you were insane. But I overthought it. And the whole time I was hiking, all I could think about was, are we going to run into a bear? We never did. But they do make it, you know, sort of front and center there. So yeah, right. well, and they and they should, right? Uh, they should. Um, they, it's their responsibility. It's funny. All the times I've hiked on the AT and also in the Smokies, lots of bears around. You could see evidence of them, but I, yeah. I've never actually run into one. I think they tend to avoid people for the right reasons. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, but exactly. Uh, people, I, I, you know, are stupid as well, right? Trying to get pictures yeah. of them and. In Yellowstone, I guess some girl was trying to pet a bison, you know, stupid stuff like that. So, oh my God, oh my um, God. Yeah, so hiking, yoga, golf. And then, you know, for thinking, going back to the unit, I mean, for me, just trying to be present mm-hmm. for my family and loved ones when they want me to be present, not necessarily when I want to be uh-huh. present. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what um, I've been trying right. to do. Okay, I'm going right, to That's always harder for me. Um, yeah, working on that. And then, of course, continuously learning. I've been meditating, uh, I think I mentioned to you, since January. And I like to think I am a practicing somewhat Buddhist. And going maybe back to school at some point to explore the notion of ethical leadership or business ethics and spiritual leadership. And just to kind of explore. I love to go back to school and take liberal arts classes that I never got to take as a chemi. <laughs> little art history, right? Oh I never God. took any of that either. Oh Music. Oh, that would be so good. <laughs> oh, gosh. You, you and I are too much alike. So, right. so I thought about naming this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because that's sort of how I feel. So what aren't you done with yet? Oh, gosh. I don't think I'll ever be done with myself. Like- because it's just... One of the wonderful things about getting older, and I'm 59, so I'm going to be 60 next year, Liz. And I look at the next 10 years, you know, and I look at like 2030 when I'll be 69. And I say, you know what, just being open to and not being afraid, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to the point you made, right, of all the wrong things that could happen, but really working on my own fear to just be open hearted about mm-hmm. continuing to learn and, and not being judgmental. It's something I've been working on um, as much as I can because I find that I've been conditioned and it's my DNA too, right? It's like part of it is like I'm a, I, I can be good if I put other people down, you know, and just not comparing yourself to others because it's so easy trap um, and it's a, it's a short-lived trap. You never go any place sustainably good with that. So just, yeah, opening myself up to be compassionate and not being judgmental. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on Third Act. So where can our listeners find you online? Well, so they can find me on LinkedIn mostly. Okay. Um, we'll I, put it I, in the show I'm notes. Not, I'm not a big social media person. Um, that's a whole other story. I think I can kind of figure out where it comes from. But um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Yeah, okay. and I'm working on my website, courageandpurpose.com, but it's not ready for prime time. Okay, so we will put the LinkedIn on the show notes. So thank you. It's great talking to you. It was great to talk to you as well, Liz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. 
I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.